Hello and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington DC based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everyone. David Fortney here, and welcome to another great edition of DC Insiders, What Employers Need to Know. I've got both Bert and Nita with me again. And how are you guys doing? Nita, I think you're I'm, snowbound, aren't you? I am snowbound. It is snowing. We're to get potentially eight to 12 inches of oh, snow. Gosh. Yes. And very cold. Hey, Bert, how are you doing today? Well, here in D.C., we've had our uh, bolt of winter and we're hoping that uh, if winter's here, spring is soon behind. Well, D.C., everything's exciting. We have the D.C. commanders <laughs> and everything like that. So speaking of change, what we really want to do today, just like the weather changes, the views on affirmative action keep changing and keep moving around. And we want to really try to focus on what we can expect for employers as the Supreme Court has agreed to decide perhaps the most significant affirmative action case that the court has determined, and this is one, it arises in higher ed. And that's, of course, the case involving Harvard and UNC that the court has agreed to decide. But that case and that that whole discussion of affirmative action has really lit up recently and in the current context. And this directly impacts employers in so many ways. And what I'd like to do, Nita and Bert, is just see if we can work through that a little bit, because I know in our discussions, you know, kind of over coffee and so forth, we keep coming back to these issues. And I think they're really interesting. So there are a couple of aspects that I think are worth unpacking. One, there's this whole expanded social discussion and political response, largely because the president indicated both in his campaign and more recently, he's committed to hiring a black woman, uh, hiring, <laughs> appointing a black woman uh, to serve as the Supreme Court justice. Is that good diversity or is that a quota? You've got commentary going all ways. The rollback of affirmative action in higher ed. Let's talk about what the litigation itself means. And then, of course, the impact that those higher ed decisions have always had on employers' diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, as well as affirmative action itself. And all of this kind of gets packaged up as we sit here at the beginning of February, picking off Black History Month. So I think it makes the whole discussion really interesting and very, very relevant. So, Bert, let's jump into the Supreme Court appointment, because the president, I don't think he meant to, but he seems to have kicked over a bit of a hornet's nest. That seems to be this president's special burden. Every time he says something, it comes out a little bit misshapen. But clearly, the issue is the pledge to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. People seem to have forgotten that President Reagan and President Trump both promised to appoint women. President Trump even went so far as to create a list that was vetted by the Federalist Society that he had no input to. Nobody seemed to be bent out of shape at that point. But here, Biden's pledge to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court so that the court starts reflecting the diversity of the country has kicked off something of a hailstorm of criticism, uh, mostly from predictable sources. 
uh, stating, to use the terms that David used, that this is affirmative action run amok and dooming the court to mediocrity, even though the panel of distinguished jurists is about as impressive as any group of lawyers and jurists that you could possibly have. And uh, it just kicked off what, David, I hope you can carry into the social realm of this nomination. Bert, I just want to mention what's interesting is this kind of got kicked off by an individual who's at Georgetown or was perhaps no longer at Georgetown University. And what was interesting to me, because it carries over into the Supreme Court decisions, is that he was saying that an Asian-American woman should be appointed, almost indicating that no black women are qualified, sort of the welfare queen run amok. And to some extent, the opponents of affirmative action in that situation, as well as in the Supreme Court, which you're going to talk about shortly, are pitching one group against another. So the especially Asian Americans against African Americans. Nita, it feels to me, I mean, let's just sort of call it what it is. I think some of this feels like race baiting. I mean, we historically, we haven't had blowback if we say we want to find a qualified woman. Now we don't have blowback find a qualified female Asian. The past selections have all been white qualified women. What's unique about the discussion now? It is it involves black. So I think that when people start using that this must be a quota or totally misstating what affirmative action is and efforts to find qualified diverse candidates, which is what affirmative action should be, that this is digressing into more of a racially tinged and candidly race baiting. And these just aren't knuckleheads on podcasts. We're on a podcast, so maybe we are, but I don't think we are. These are some of our leading voices, what should be our leading voices. U.S. senators, you know, leadership at, at some of the finest higher education institutions in the country. And yet these comments are being made. That's a deep disappointment. And I think shows that we still have a long way to go in our social efforts. And I think, David, just to carry on to that. This is what employers are finding in their workplaces as well. People may not remember, but uh, I want to say a couple of years ago, there was a white Google engineer who pushed back against their diversity and inclusion program and basically wrote a manifesto saying that only white men were capable of being software engineers. He ended up being terminated after he spread this all around society. But I think this is kind of what we're seeing in society at large, this big disconnect between what really is affirmative action and what is something that is more like quotas. Well, of course, this context is going to be, so we have the Supreme Court nominee. We also have higher ed. And, you know, education has always been sort of on the leading edge of dealing with discrimination in our country, all the way back to Brown versus Board of Education. Then the Bakke decision that dealt with affirmative action and how those issues are to be dealt with. But Bert, let's talk about these two new cases that the court just took up involving Harvard and UNC. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Bakke because, you know, this all goes back about 50 years to the case of uh, the University of California versus Bakke. And in that case, we have to remember the court gave us the format for contemporary affirmative action. It struck down the use of any racial quotas. But it permitted universities to take race into consideration in admissions so long as it was one of a number of factors, if just not the determinative factor. The rationale, and it's not in the law, the rationale was that a more diverse student body 
was in and of itself an important educational benefit to a university. Harvard and UNC, University of North Carolina, adopted this model. That model has been tested in a number of Supreme Court rulings and has been upheld. But the subject has always been challenged and has always been controversial. The Harvard case is kind of interesting because it was not initiated by uh, disgruntled students, but by a special interest legal action group acting on behalf, it claimed, of Asian American applicants whom it asserted were not being treated equally or fairly. The UNC case is somewhat similar. It was a challenge to the general affirmative action program, but by the same special interest legal action group. This case hadn't even been heard on appeal. It was still wandering around in the district court. It just had a district court decision. But the Supreme Court reached down and plucked this up ostensibly to have both a private university and a public university, which has constitutional requirements under the 14th Amendment, and could put those in a consolidated case. But most commentators believe that this action by the Supreme Court is an ominous sign for the future of affirmative action in university admissions. I'd like to hear your views on that, guys. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I think, first of all, when the court is going to decide is also important. It's going to be brief this term. In theory, it could be decided before this June. I think most of us expect this uh, decision to be announced next term. But there's been some interesting things as how do we get there. Of course, the Trump Justice Department filed amicus briefs in the Harvard case and were advocates on behalf of those challenging the current affirmative action. The Biden administration has reversed. The Supreme Court saw its views and it said, never mind, we've done a 180, which is okay. Different views, different administrations. So that kind of leaves the court free to say, thank you. Apparently the executive branch can't make up its mind. We're going to be the decider. And I think every indication is that when that decision comes out, use of race or protected quotas will be found to be illicit unless it is specifically to remedy a determination of prior discrimination. And I think, David, the really important point that we're trying to make on this podcast, most people don't really care that much about how people get into admissions except when they're their children. But the question is, and the point is, is that employers and how employers have used diversity and affirmative action has really fallen and flowed out of these Supreme Court decisions on higher ed. And so I think that's really the next step that we need to talk about is what is this likely to mean? Yeah, you know, I think the history of affirmative action, the schoolyard used to be the battleground. And then after about 20 years, the workplace has become the battleground. And I think we're gonna follow that pattern in the wake of the Harvard and UNC cases as well. Let's just make an assumption that it's likely that the Harvard UNC decision will significantly cut back the use of race and protected status, EEO status in higher ed decision-making. What's that gonna do to employment? Well, employers need to care because for a couple of different reasons. One, those who are federal contractors obviously have affirmative action obligations. But I think, David, it's important to remember that affirmative action obligations for federal contractors are not quotas. They are simply goals, but they are based on race, gender, disability, and veteran status. And so in that situation, 
if they want to continue doing DEI and affirmative action, they're going to have to do it very carefully and not use race as a factor. The interesting question is whether it's also going to impact gender. It hasn't up to this point, but employers are going to have to be very, very careful because we also see, based on all of this negative public debate around diversity, including states that are planning on forbidding employers to make white people feel bad about racism, you're going to start seeing those critical race theory type laws across the country for employers. Well, I'll tell you, I reside in Virginia, and we have a governor that just rode into his position based really on framing of the critical race theory and opposition to it, and has now set up hotlines for people to report when their children feel uncomfortable because these topics might even be discussed. But in addition, there's one other point as we kind of look at this that I think goes directly to employer affirmative action. You mentioned the executive order, 11246, which all federal contractors know and have lived with for over 50 years. Interestingly, that OSHA decision that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that could, by the Supreme Court, that could have implications for employer federal contractor affirmative action. Because in that case, the Supreme Court made a big deal about where the statute didn't expressly authorize vaccinations. And the major question that's posed deals with that. I would frame it as an activist judiciary taking a whole different cut. And in the case of employer affirmative action, which is grounded on the procurement statutes, you can see the same conclusions being drawn by this court. Well, the procurement statute didn't say we should have affirmative action. It's not authorized. Congress hasn't spoken to it. Maybe we should strike it and roll it back. I certainly agree, David, and it's one of the most troubling aspects of this whole bent in the court's rulings that unless the underlying statute unambiguously delegates authority, well, you know, not even the Supreme Court can require that Congress be unambiguous. And if it's the Supreme Court that decides when there's ambiguity, we're going to follow the path that has been set out in the uh, OSHA ETS case. That also has ramifications all through the employment world, you know, only federal contractors have regulatory obligations for affirmative action, but most of the business world is now responding because of the events of the last two years, George Floyd, Me Too, et cetera, whatever you want, to try to sponsor, let's call them voluntary affirmative action programs. Those of you who've been at this for a hundred years might remember the Weber case where voluntary affirmative action was one of the things before the Supreme Court. These programs are efforts to diversify a company's workforce. Can't use quotas of any kind, but rely on expanded outreach, recruitment, training, mentoring. Most companies do this because they think it's a good business idea. And many companies do it in response to outright consumer pressure. If there is an express cutback, I think, in government-sponsored affirmative action, it would almost surely be reflected in a diminution of these efforts. And I use as my example what happened at Starbucks in the wake of the OSHA ETS decision. This was a company that imposed a vaccine on its employees two days after the Supreme Court decision, striking down the vaccine mandate. Starbucks withdrew its vaccine mandate because the moral underpinning for that kind of action had just been taken away. And I fear with the affirmative action cases before the Supreme Court that the moral underpinning will be taken away. On the other hand, though, there is 
interestingly, a big case that was just filed by a former black coach in the NFL saying there's only one black coach in all of the NFL, despite the Rooney rule with which Mr. Fortney is very familiar being a Steeler fan. And I think that, you know, clearly there is discrimination going on out there in the greater world. And so the question becomes, how do we deal with it? How do you move forward? The Rooney rule apparently hasn't worked, David, and I don't know what our next steps are, because I believe that Bert's right, that employers are going to step back because they're going to be concerned about litigation. I think that's right. And of course, this lawsuit really challenges what I think most diversity experts would tell us was a best practice. Make sure your slates are fully diversified. But of course, there the claim is, yeah, it was diversified, but my interview was a sham. Fix was in. They were going to pick a non-Black and white coach a candidate had already been selected. So it's just a sham. Diversity will also pick up things that are perhaps secondary would likely rise to the top if diversity is set back in this higher ed case uh, for employers. So for example, I can see you know diversity in terms of where people are educated, where people live, what their work experiences are, a host of other factors, but potentially not including protected status, that is race, gender, et cetera. It's interesting because, of course, they still would be Title VII to protect from programs that operate discriminatorily, whether intentional or just having that result, what we refer to as impact. But I think it will become much more ambiguous and not as directly tied, even as part of a goal or objective to race and EEO. So traditional affirmative action would look different I think, if the Supreme Court rules the way that we anticipate. You know, the one thing I just want to underline, and we overlook the, uh, what I call the moral underpinning created by the Supreme Court. And I think once, if, and as we anticipate, if and when affirmative action and college admissions is cut back, if there's a continuing cutback on the Weber, Croson, Adirond line of cases, Individual private employers like Starbucks are just not going to have the support they need to go forward to carry out what they believe is the appropriate intent to make a more diverse workforce. It's just going to be harder. And I think, Bert, also the broader social challenges we see in response to the potential Supreme Court nominee, Google experiences, Nita highlighted with that engineer claim. Those aren't going to be outliers. That's likely to become a much broader part of the social discussion. So I think those changes are there. So what this really means, I think, for employers is those that are practicing affirmative action, particularly federal contractors, you need to be tracking these changes carefully and be prepared to be nimble and move quickly and to, pardon the pun, diversify your diversity programs in terms of what they entail and what they focus on. I mean, I think those are very important points. Well, let's hit a couple of takeaways. Bart, from this discussion, what's your takeaway for us? Well, David, I'll pick up where you left off. If I'm an employer that has DEI programs and even affirmative action programs, I would start now to develop my defenses to justify the programs both to my workforce and of course to the greater world to make sure they're legally sound in the event of a legal challenge. Nita? The other thing you have to be careful about, and we see this sometimes with clients' DEI programs, is they have, shall we say, goals, but they're taken as quotas. Make sure that doesn't happen because if your DEI program or your affirmative action program uses something like quotas on protected status, that will definitely bring lawsuits 
by those who oppose affirmative action. Final thing I see in this, the role of the judiciary, the courts, is ascending. They're becoming much more dominant in these conversations. They are going to be the decider. The, the conservatives had historically said that the criticized the judiciary for being activists was the buzzword. Well, golly, it's hard to imagine something more activist in terms of the fairly radical legal changes that we're anticipating and look highly likely. So the courts are important. And the political parties are beginning to recognize that as they continue to staff furiously to get the courts to bend in their direction. All right. Well, guys, a great podcast. Nita, I do appreciate that shout out for the Steelers. Mike Tomlin, the only African-American <laughs> coach in the league and a great coach at that, I would add. Uh, even though we're not going to be in the Super Bowl this year, we still like the Steelers. All right. Well, listen, everyone, we want to thank you for joining us for another great discussion. Please subscribe if you haven't already to your podcast provider and stay safe. And we look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.